Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about an income inequality fact fix. You won't believe it. We're going to interview today Andrew Pollock, the author of Why Meadow Died. And we'll talk about media protection racket, Epstein, Clinton, and Kavanaugh. And finally, yesterday's election messages. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. You will hear the Democrat presidential candidates in this 2020 election cycle talk about income inequality, and they tout it because they want to talk about their plans to somehow raise taxes on the rich, raise taxes on corporations, and bring more money into Washington because they think it's their job to redistribute it. This would be what socialism is. But there was a brilliant piece in the Wall Street Journal actually by Phil Graham, a former uh, Texas, a U.S. senator from Texas, still here based in Texas, uh, and John Early. And they took apart the data that the left points to all the time to claim that income inequality in America is a massive, massive problem. You need to learn this data, be able to repeat it, and tell your friends so every time you hear someone on the left claiming income inequality is a major problem in America, you have a little bit of data to respond to them. The short story is this. Two factors that the Census Bureau does not take into account when it is telling you what the income inequality is, and they break the income groups in America into five segments, so top 20% down to lowest earning 20%. Uh, They keep using the word quintile, but it's kind of weird to say, so I'm going with 20%. In any case, data from the Census Bureau reports that the average person in the lowest, the bottom 20% of America earns about $4,900 a year, so less than $5,000 a year, while the average top 20% earner, the average in the top 20% earns $295,000, almost, you know, almost $300,000. And the difference between those two is 60 times. So they're saying this is outrageous. How could we be in a country where the lowest 20% earn so little that the highest 20% earn 60 times more than the lower uh, income earners. And actually, even though I really oppose socialism and the use of the federal government to redistribute wealth, I will tell you, most people react and say, well, we gotta do something here. But what Phil Graham did, a brilliant correction of this data that I just, I can't wait to have, I wanna urge you to share, to read this article. If you go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, drop down, list of links, you can read this article. Here's the short story. The data crunchers fail to include in this data two enormously significant things. One, they do not include what percent the highest, the highest, the top 20% income earners pay in taxes. So what they really have to work with after they're done paying taxes, both in absolute numbers and percent, of course, the top 20%, which is probably right, but they pay pretty much all the taxes that America pays. I mean, they pay the the massive majority of taxes. So they're not really living on $295,000 a year. Um, They're earning on something, they're living on essentially more like $110,000 a year. So the first factoid left out 
is how much people pay in taxes. Obviously, the lowest 20% pay virtually no taxes. So they're really living on this actual income that's been attributed to them. But the second point is, this data from the Census Bureau does not take into account all of the money that the federal government already collects from the high income workers and corporations and redistributes through existing programs. Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, housing assistance. It's something like 95 programs where money is already transferred from the wealthiest to the poorest by going up into the federal government to taxes, who then, in taxes, and the federal government takes that money and moves it on down to the lowest 20% of income earners in America. So the net result of this wealth transfer on average, that the lowest 20% people are not really earning $4,900 a year or a little less than 5,000 a year, they actually are earning based on the uh, the uh, government transfers, private transfers, charitable, family sources, all that income, the average 20% lowest income earner in America is earning about 50000 50901 So pretty big difference. And then the highest income earners are receiving virtually none of this government transfer. I'm not saying they should. I'm saying that the highest income earners paying the most in taxes are also not the recipients of this government transfer of money. So they are not really functioning at the income level, 295, but more like 110. So you get to the end of the day, the real difference between the highest and lowest income earners is not really, as the government tries to say, and as the Democrats are trying to say, that the highest income earners earn 60 times lower than the bottom income earners. The real fact is, Get ready for this, 3.8 to one. That's the difference between net take home, what you have to live on, very, very, very different picture of income inequality. There's much more data in this article by Senator Phil Graham, but I'm not going to read it to you today. I want to urge you to read it yourself and actually to have it available to share with people because I do think good-hearted, loving Americans sadly, especially women, get really, really pulled, driven, concerned about income inequality, and they hear numbers spewing out from the American left, from the Census Bureau, from left-wing advocates saying, look at these differences in numbers, this is outrageous, we have to fix this, and just stop and think about this as I close out the first five today. When the left touts these numbers about income inequality, what they are getting at is they want the taxpayers to authorize them to take more money from those who work and earn it, take it up to Washington, and distribute it to the people who are the lower income earners. But they've already been doing that. That's what started with the Great Society. We've been doing that since the 1960s. We have been redistributing wealth in this country, and we've been redistributing it to the point that it's really, we, we've talked in the show other times about you know, the whatever it is, the, the bottom 10% of America is wealthier than 67% of the rest of the world. We, we may have, if you can play with numbers, and if you're a statistician or a mathematician, you can play with numbers all day long. But the bottom line is there is not this massive 60 times difference that the left tries to paint 
that between the lowest and highest income earners that justifies their political mission to raise taxes on the rich and to create more government programs, therefore creating more dependency on government programs, which is what the American left lives on, a growing dependency class designed to make more and more Americans unable to function and survive on their own, more dependent on government, and gives the American left more power, which is indeed all that they're really after. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I mentioned as we started the show today, we have an author joining us. I'm going to hold up his book. You have to pardon the uh, sticky sticking out of the side, but I want to be sure you could see his book and you can order this on Amazon as I did. It's called Why Meadow Died. The authors, two authors, Andrew, uh, Andrew Pollock and Max Eden. This is about the shooting, the school shooting in, in Valentine's Day, February of 2018 at the Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The subtitle of the book is The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. So this is a dad who wrote this book with a friend of his trying to lay out what the real policies, the real issues, the real problems are in America that led to this unfortunate, horrific incident in Florida in 2018, lay out what he discovered as he tried to dive in and understand how could this have happened? How could this shooter, who we're going to refer to, and by the way, in this, sh this show, referred to in the book, I, I know probably most of you know his name is Nicholas Cruz. The dad refers to him in this book by his prison number. I like this a lot. His prison uniform number. He's 18-1558 or 18-1958. So with that, I'd like to turn to and invite to join us on show today, Andrew Pollack. Hello, sir. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad to have you. I'm so glad. I first want to just commend and thank you for writing this book. This book, this interview with Andrew, this again, Andrew Pollock, author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. I just want to thank you for writing it because I think in the immediate aftermath of this horrific incident, much of America simply said, okay, this is it, this is proof, this, we're, this is where we are now. We have to all recognize gun control is the entire problem. It's where the left and the media and officials, even in Broward County went, was gun control must be the answer. But your research into all of the policies behind what happened led you to some different conclusions. In fact, one, one sentence you had, which I love, was the problem was political correctness. But I'm going to get to that in a moment. I want to start with you. Talk about the idea that people in America think that when they, parents, go and talk to their teachers at school, the people really who's running the school are the teachers and the parents having input. And you're pointing out, really, there's a whole hidden agenda behind school policies that teachers and parents have no control over. And I want to ask you if you can just describe what you're talking about in terms of parents don't really have the control they think they do in talking to their kids' schools. Sure. Well, I did this book to honor, you know, to honor my daughter. She would want everyone uh, in this country to know the truth of what happened and not what the mainstream media and, and a lot of people uh, that all get on the bandwagon after every shooting, uh, that what they would want you to believe and what was the truth. Because I went into it, you know, I was never political. Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't even vote. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even vote till 2016 when I saw it with the shape, the, the downturn in this country, and I had to get out and vote and do something. But I went into this, I said, 
you know, I, I want to look into what happened at the school, and I want to know all the facts and who failed uh, my daughter, if there was someone, and if there was policies in place that allowed this to happen. Now, before my daughter was even buried that week, they had the superintendent and the sheriff were on mainstream news channels claiming uh, gun control and blaming the NRA before my daughter, was, the, the, the funeral was even over. So I, uh, I just took a path that I wanted to learn everything. And, you know, the facts started coming out uh, very fast. You know, people were, what, what led to me believe to all these problems were I started getting phone calls from other students. The other students knew the killer, who the killer was before he even left the building, that he shot up the school, the same kid. And, uh, and as I started looking into all this, I started finding out about these policies that allow these kids to get away with multiple crimes every school year. In Broward, it was actually four misdemeanors per school year uh, that the children were allowed to get away with. And, and, and another thing that I want everyone else to know that, that's listening was, well, we, I didn't even get a chance to mourn my daughter's death. And I was uh, met with the president, uh, and then I was in Tallahassee putting a bill together with the governor then was uh, Rick Scott. We were working on a bill to make every uh, kid safer in the state of Florida. While I was doing that with Republicans in Tallahassee, uh, Democrats, you know what they were doing, Debbie? When I was in Tallahassee? Democrats with the students were organizing a march in uh, D.C., that March for Our Lives march, that uh, BS march that they put, they were attacking our Second Amendment and the president. Uh, Why I was in Florida getting things done with with Republicans in Tallahassee where we put a bill together that made every kid safer in the state. So Democrats ran with their marching. Why Republicans looked at what happened. Rick Scott also put together a commission Okay, that looked into all the failures, okay, uh, in Parkland. He put together a commission so we could see what happened and prevent it from happening again uh, while Democrats were going, doing marching and attacking our Second Amendment uh, while all this was going on. And while I was doing all this investigating is when I found out how dangerous this kid was. Like, uh, I lay it out, and if people think it only happened it only happened in Broward. These policies are throughout the whole country. Uh, I went, actually, you had a shooting not too far from your school, uh, Dallas, where you're at, in Santa Fe, where I traveled to Santa Fe, and the, a similar situation with a troubled teen in Santa Fe. Uh, it's the same thing with the Dayton, Ohio shooter uh, that recently happened. He had a kill list. He threatened to shoot the school up. He had a rape list. So these policies are throughout the whole country of not holding kids accountable uh, and letting them commit multiple crimes per school year without ever in getting introduced to law enforcement. This the, the child I found out in my investigation was so dangerous that they had to frisk him every day, Debbie, before school. And he wasn't allowed in with a backpack. The, the police were at his house over 40 times, okay, because uh, the sheriff in Broward, they sign on to these uh, diversionary programs, okay, where they don't arrest uh, juveniles when they commit crimes. 
so their crime statistics look much lower. So when the sheriff runs, he could say he reduced crime by 30%, but they just stopped reporting it and they stopped holding kids accountable. The same thing with the superintendent who was blaming the NRA and gun control. He puts these programs in place of not arresting, not expelling, not suspending. So he could say he reduced the crime in the school district by 70%. So, and these problems, just so people know, uh, of not suspending kids and lack of discipline, uh, California just passed a law. It's illegal to suspend disruptive children. That's a law now in California. And, and this is what's going on across the country. And I lay it out in my book. I really, parent, every parent in the country should read it because it's like a manual to what happened to me. And I don't want any other parent to have to deal with. I, like today, I have an open cut on me that's never going to heal from what happened to me and my daughter getting murdered. And no parent should put their child in an environment like I did where, where it's, it's just not a safe environment for children or teachers. And, and that's the new public school. And it's a platform of these Democrats that are running for president. If you could look it up on their websites, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, they, wanna, they want these policies in more schools of not hold to end the school to prison pipeline. Okay, I met with the president, Debbie, and he actually ended it. Uh, what the Obama administration put in place, mm. they called it, end, let's end the school to prison pipeline and just stop holding, stop any accountability at that age level. But I met with the president and he formed, and not many people know it, but I'm going to tell you, he formed a federal school safety commission with all his cabinet secretaries where he ended it. So... He did his part, but it doesn't help parents at a local level. No matter what the president does or what your governor really does, the school districts control your child's school and what goes on. That was a thorough answer. You went through my next six questions, which is great. <laughs> I'm so appreciative. I, I sorry about no, that. No, 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 sorry. I love it. I'm tuned it. in, and you know what I've been through. I don't. I want to try and get it out to parents how important it is, because they pick where they put their child. Uh, and I did. I did. Could you imagine they frisked my daughter's murderer every day, but we didn't. They didn't tell any parents that this kid was that dangerous. And there's kids like that in schools throughout the whole country. Right. Your book does include chapter describing really from young childhood how uh, dangerous, violent, inappropriate, uh, out of line, bizarre, violent this kid was. This school shooter was, uh, and somehow the system just kept trying through this this uh, liberal mentality that would say we can't hurt him by giving him a criminal record so we're just going to keep making excuses and they have a lot of programs one that i mentioned that it's just got a lot of attention and and it is one that the president um and our uh, education secretary devos uh called out in particular promise that it was it stands for yeah preventing recidivism through opportunities, mentoring, intervention, support, and education. The whole idea that you can cajole badly behaving children, children with violent tendencies, back into uh, normalcy and that you mainstream them and keep them in the schools, it was to protect them from getting this prison to pipeline problem that they're going to end up getting arrested when they're minors and they end up heading to prison. And you make a great point at some place in your book about how these programs don't even really help these kids who should be prosecuted, who should be arrested, who should be called out, because all they're really taught is 
nothing ever happens to me. Correct. It actually does the opposite for these kids. By not helping them while they're juveniles and not mentoring them where there's law enforcement involved, it sets them up for failure. In Broward, where this, I only know Broward because this is where I got hurt and I, this is where I did my investigation, but the felony rates went up with, with adults once they hit 21 or 18. From like 20 to 25, the felonies skyrocketed because all of a sudden now these kids, they get in trouble and there's no program to go into. Now you're getting arrested with a felony. So I just want to break it down to the parents, and hopefully they'll buy my book. But there's two, it's a multiple things that's going on with the public school. One is that discipline problem that we, we just spoke and laid it out, both of us. The other major problem is that's going on across the country in public schools. Uh, they'll take a, a child who is emotionally disturbed, or they call it oppositional defiant disorder, that's what they call it. So they're emotionally disturbed, and they label them special needs, okay? So that makes that child virtually untouchable in the school for any type of consequences. So we're not talking, so they'll take a kid, like we all want to help kids that, that they have dyslexia, they're autistic, they're labeled, they have a learning disability. Those kids, they'll label them uh, special needs, and not one parent, if they're not disruptive, we don't have a problem mainstreaming them. But they'll take a kid now with a mental disorder, okay, he's mentally ill, uh, like a so like sociopath, and they label those kids special needs, and they mainstream those kids also into the public schools. And that's why you're having so many issues between the, the lack of discipline and the mainstreaming of mentally disturbed and emotionally disturbed children into the school districts. And they don't want to address those problems, but they want to infringe and blame the blame guns and uh, what whatever they call them assault weapons. There's no such thing. But they want to blame. They don't have solutions. These Democrats by looking at these problems, it's just easier to blame the gun rather than look at these issues that's going on throughout the country. Right, Andrew. When we started, I was going to make a point because you say in your book how you weren't political and you didn't even vote till 2016. I was gonna say, no. clearly you're the first guest I've probably ever had on my show who says I'm not political. But this is such a profound issue for America. Oh, I wanna I... hit two other points that you talked about that are just vital to understand. Um, one was Max Eden was using the term social justice industrial complex. I love when that language of the left is co-opted and used uh, on the side of more rational people, but the idea that you as a parent think you can talk to your teacher and your kid's teacher and the teacher will talk to the principal and somehow problems get solved, but you make the point that between the teacher reports to the principal who reports to the superintendent of the school district, which in turn is largely shaping its policies in response to political pressure from Washington, from organizations like the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center, where the whole mentality of looking at schools is about claiming we have victims who are just being deprived of their right to a fair education. We have the victim mentality. We have the teachers blamed as racist. And so the policies that we take in- Correct are designed to punish teachers for this alleged racism when they're really, and they're never getting out the problems that caused the kid to behave badly in the first place. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I have issues with teachers because I ran a school board race. Uh, yeah. I didn't run, but we tried to make a change in Broward. It's in the book. Yep. And I'm not saying all teachers are this way, 
but uh, most of these school districts uh, have these teachers, and they pay. You know, they have the they have the teachers union. I fought the teachers union, and a lot of these teachers now they 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 subject themselves to this environment of abuse. Okay, with from students uh, mouthing off, uh, they can't suspend kids. So I don't understand why teachers don't take a stand for themselves. You know, they they want to complain. You got low pay, uh, low pay. And then they're they're put into an atmosphere that's chaotic, and they have no control over these children that are disruptive, you know. So I uh, I have an issue with teachers. Uh, a majority of them don't stand up and speak up for themselves, okay. And and I call them a lot of them are spineless. I'm sorry to say, uh, if they all spoke up and told the parents what were going on in the schools, uh, you know, it, it could make a difference. But you know, they don't. They just go with the democratic. Uh, the teachers unions who aren't for they, they like these stats okay the teachers unions are for these stats they work with aclu they work with the southern poverty law center so it's really the teachers are taking it because they put themselves they're subjective to it and they don't speak up and i witnessed it firsthand with them in, in the school district and i love the teachers but listen there comes a time where stop taking this you know why do you want to be in a work atmosphere like that where you're not you not they all say they're not, they're not making enough money and they then they aren't but but they don't speak up and they pay their dues into the unions that push these type of policies so it, it's a big issue with me what I have with them but they, they're the ones that could speak up and and they don't do it they go along with the the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and they pay in they pay their dues a good majority of them into those unions that back these policies that create these unsafe environments. Absolutely true. There's a story we'll get to another day, but there was a story, I think, out of Ohio, Hamilton County, where they had an enormous percentage of teachers announcing already that they are not coming back next year. So they have big vacancies, and maybe it isn't Ohio, but in any case, the point was, there was stories about teachers, for example, one teacher who was physically punched in the face by a student. Correct. And because whatever the discipline policy was, the kid is back in her class next week. Virtually no consequence. But the reason, no. my, my answer to your, 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 what you're saying about teachers not speaking up is the pressure in our society to conform to the politically correct point of view, which is there's no reason for extraordinary discipline problems among minority students. And so therefore it must be that teachers are racist, school districts are racist, somehow the principal, somebody yep. is racist. So you can't deal with the real problem and people, teachers do not want to be the ones to point this out. They don't want to speak up because they're surrounded by others who are going to malign them. And so it's easier just to be silent or to quit your job. But to your point, your book about not wanting to ever have this happen to any other child ever, there have to be people in the teachers unions and parents in school districts speaking up, pointing out that this cannot continue in America. And I actually was one of my final questions for you is, what do you think parents should do so we don't have any more incidents like this horrific incident uh, in Florida in 2018? Oh, there's a couple of things uh, that they could do. One is I tried in Broward to make a change, and we couldn't. We lost uh, the school board election. One mom won, but we lost where we would control the school district, uh, the board, the amount of board members where we could have made a change. So we couldn't make it. We couldn't get it done in Broward. But there are counties where parents, well, they listen to the parents. You know, parents need to talk to this, to the police officers, to the teachers, incompetent. All these policies going on. Talk to your kids 
Are their kids disruptive in class? So that's one thing. But if you can't get that done, uh, I would tell every parent, please, you know, your good chance your child won't get shot in a school like what happened to me. But if they're in, why put them in an environment where you have these type of children there? Why subject them to that type of environment when they could be in a good learning environment? You know, if you have the opportunity, I know Florida has vouchers for private school. Or, or if you could afford private school, I would tell a parent, sacrifice everything you can for your child and put your kid in a private school because they don't deal with those policies or certain charter schools or homeschool. And one other thing I want to talk to your listeners about because you're in Texas. So I wanted to talk that why I'm such a proponent now for the Second Amendment, why it means so much to me. Uh, and people always ask me. So my daughter was murdered on the third floor, Debbie. She was shot. Nine times, four times down the hall, and then shot five times. Uh, when she was shot the second time, she shielded uh, a freshman. She covered her, but the bullets bullets went through my daughter and killed the girl underneath her also. So hundreds of people called 911 to, to get saved, and no one went in that building. All the police, about five or seven of them, took a perimeter around the building, one is one got arrested now deputy the coward Peterson. he got arrested he hid behind the wall at the door where he could have saved my daughter but there was like another six that didn't go in okay why this kid was walking through the building and shooting on the third floor so why i'm a proponent i don't i'm never gonna let that happen to another child with me or my friend or my family i'm out, not gonna call 911 I'm going to take care of it right then and there. Because my daughter waited. They didn't get to my daughter on that floor for 43 minutes. So why should anyone have to wait for 911 and and get murdered or or put that risk that they're not going to come in and save you? So I'm not going to let it happen. And that's why the Second Amendment means a lot to me. Because I'm going to protect my family and my friends at at, at any cost. So I, I just... and. Parents, I just urge you to go out and read my book, Why Metal Died. It's a manual of what the truth was that happened and what we did in Florida and what to look for in your child's school. Andrew Pollack, I first thank you again for the research you did, for the writing you did. I know how long it takes to really write and write well. Thank you for your bravery in speaking up. It's just, it's a, obviously a horrific family, um, you know, instance in your family that you will always be with you. And I'm, I'm ter- we're all terribly sorry for what happened, but I love that you're trying to help America, help parents and other school districts and people around the country realize you can take some steps. You don't just have to cringe and wait for the next thing. By the way, you're, you're as you know, in the great state of Texas, we're way into the Second Amendment. So you're, you're remarkably well, very well received by I'm my audience, for sure. Of it. And, you know, we can't, you know, I tell everybody, the, the people out there got to get it. We're, it's in a war right now. It's a civil war in this country for votes. And if you don't get out there and vote, uh, don't complain when, when things go against us. Everybody in the country, you got to get out and vote Republican. And you can't let these people win because it's, like I say, it's a civil war of votes coming up. And we got to keep control of this country and the Senate and hopefully take back, back the House. 
What a brilliant way to close this interview. Could not agree more. We're on the same team. And again, Andrew Pollack, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. This, my friends, is the book I'm holding up. And you can see in our camera uh, why Meadow died, the people and policies that created the Parkland shooter and endanger America's students. Great analysis of so many issues. Thank you, sir, so much for joining me. Thanks, Debbie. Have a nice day. You too, sir. Okay, two more things I want to close out that little interview with. One was... Uh, Mr. Pollack, the author, made reference to a commission that President Trump formed, and he actually, I, I had it on, I can't read you all this today, but he, uh, President Trump formed this Federal Commission on School Safety. They came up with a series, he formed it in March of 2018, so it's, you know, the shooting was in, on Valentine's Day in 2018. They did their investigation report. They came back with a whole series of suggestions for the way schools can become safer. And in addition to that, as we mentioned, President Trump and his uh, education secretary, Betsy DeVos, cracked down on this ridiculous promise program, which all it really did, to be clear what President Obama's promise program did, it did not improve behavior. It endangered students who are law-abiding and normal, behave normally. It emboldened students who are violent and don't behave well. It punished entire school districts who got money for participating in the program, but had a decline in discipline. On paper, these schools look like there's all sorts of improvement. Look at this, number of arrests down and disciplinary actions are reduced. Look at this, isn't this great? All they basically said is we're not going to discipline you when you, when you behave badly and we're not gonna punish you and we're not gonna call the police and we're not gonna create a record so that Bad wrongdoers, bad actors were emboldened. That was the outcome. You had victory on paper, a victory of, oh, look at improved statistics, and you had all sorts of ridiculous sounding happy talk programs. We're gonna have restorative justice. We're gonna have, he lists all these different programs in his book. Point being, if you don't hold people accountable, especially violent ones, and you know from their past behavior they are violent, you endanger the entire school system. You endanger children. So President Trump came out, this commission came out with their answers. Nancy Pelosi completely uh, dismissed it, back of the hand, because all she wants and all the Democrats want as a solution is to take away guns from law-abiding Americans. That's their answer. And because his commission didn't say, oh yeah, grab all the guns, Nancy Pelosi dismissed it, but it's a really profound book. I cannot encourage you strongly enough to read it. Okay, I want to hit two other stories today. Um, there was a, something you probably all um, saw yesterday, but uh, there was a um, one of the incredibly wonderful Veritas projects where they record people uh, who don't know they're being recorded, and this involved a... Um, an ABC host named Amy Roback, and uh, she was caught on a mic talking about how she or her team at ABC, they actually had Jeffrey Epstein, they had, a, they had lured someone out of hiding who was afraid of Epstein, she'd come forward, she told her story, they had her story, they had Epstein, they had Clinton, Bill Clinton, they had all sorts of evidence and the ABC network would not okay it to go forward. So I'm gonna ask Matt the Wonderful to play this quick clip from Project Veritas. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that we that also quashed the story. 
And then, um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail, and now it's all coming out, and it's like these new revelations, and I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm so pissed right now. Like every day, I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh my god, we it was um, what what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago, saying like aunt like. We, there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. I had it all three years ago. Okay, folks, I cannot tell you how important this story is for a number of reasons, not just because Epstein got away with everything he got away with. And yes, I've been seeing all these memes all over Facebook and the internet about claiming Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. You know, I hope we get to the bottom of that someday. But the point of this story today and this show is that ABC decided the, the defense this woman put out after she, this video you just saw was released. And so Project Veritas has released her saying we had everything on Epstein, including Clinton, but we got shut down by the powers that be at ABC, worried about the royal family, wouldn't let them interview Princess Kate if they ran this story. So she, this woman you're just hearing speaking, Amy Roback, her statement was, it didn't air because we could not obtain sufficient corroborating evidence to meet ABC's editorial standards about her allegations. Please let, let that sink in. Please let that sink in. ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN ran salacious allegations against Kavanaugh, just now Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, from people they had no idea who they were, no idea was true, no idea what the story was, no cooperation. They ran story after story after story, salacious, absurd allegations. But because the mission was to get Justice Kavanaugh, because the real mission is to get President Trump and not permit him to exercise his authority as president to appoint a Supreme Court justice, their standards, their journalistic standards, their integrity of journalism standards, you know, thrown to the wind, didn't make one bit of difference. Everything anyone ever said bad about Kavanaugh was aired, not just once, but over and over and over and over. But this, she had obviously, this, this woman is telling you, done a major investigation, had all sorts of information, data laid out, ready to roll, and the ABC people wouldn't play it. And the reason I want to, what I, the point of this story in today's show is that if you still, if you still watch ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, read the Washington Post or the New York Times, you are not informed. You are being fed the propaganda. All of those left-wing media outlets and many more like them, they are simply the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party, of the radical left in this country. They will not run stories that would hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. If you have Bill Clinton being involved in this Epstein thing, might have hurt Hillary. Can't run that. They will not run stories that will hurt any Democrat, and they will repeat ad nauseum, utterly, utterly unjustified, unproven, just, you know, baseless allegations against Justice Kavanaugh as they do against President Trump. And the, and this thing is, it's not just, this is not just a gripe about media bias. It is a gripe about media bias. 
But it's deeper than that. These people are not just biased in the way that they might, you know, be a little bit critical, uh, more critical of a Republican if he mispronounces a word than they'd be of a Democrat if he or she mispronounced a word. This is agenda media. This is Pravda. This is, if you know that, that was the Russian media, what they had when they had communists in power and they decided, you know, we're just going to tell the people what you will believe. And so Pravda was told by the government what to report and that's what was reported. So that's what the people knew. And I understand that more and more people are tuning into alternative media. I cannot urge you strongly enough. If you believe, if you read anything in the New York Times, Washington Post, all those outlets I just talked about, Remember again, they are driven to destroy the conservative view. They're driven to destroy President Trump. They're driven to destroy Republicans. They don't want the truth about any story to come out. The truth is always whatever fits the American left's agenda. Last story for today. I want to hit the story about elections yesterday. You likely know that President Trump did a pretty big rally in Kentucky uh, just prior to yesterday's elections. And one of the elections, one of the main characters he was there defending was the governor, the then governor, Bevin, who was up for re-election. And as I left the house today, Bevin had not yet conceded. Uh, but it appears that the Democrat won. It appears the Democrat won. So I want to talk a little bit about the elections, uh, what they mean and what to watch for, because I actually think these are have huge consequences. First of all, all the left-wing outlets are, are just pouncing on the fact that Bevin apparently lost. So they're saying, oh my gosh, Trump's magic is gone. This proves that no one cares what Trump thinks. You know, he probably hurt Bevin. He shouldn't have showed up. Bevin's a bad guy. Trump's, you know, Trump doesn't have the clout. Everyone thinks he does. So they're ready to just a pile on Trump because Bevin lost. I don't know Bevan, Matt Bevan, the governor. I don't know him. I do know that there are many, many stories, even preceding the election, that he was way down in personal popularity, in popularity among his, his state. In fact, there was a poll among uh, all governors in the state, in America, saying, you know, how popular is your governor? And he came out dead last, like the fewest, the smallest percentage of Kentuckians had a favorable impression of their governor, lowest of all. So, so he's unpopular. He's apparently a brusque, uh, uh, I don't know what words you'd use, but he's, he's not a warm, fuzzy guy. You know, he's, he's a little bit confrontational, a little bit abrasive, um, he's not, or maybe a lot abrasive. And so there's a personal dislike factor. But I want to urge you not to read into the, his loss if he, do, if he did lose. Don't read into it what the media is trying to tell you to read into it. Recognize that also, in Kentucky, because many people were up for election, there was a victory in Kentucky uh, for the Attorney General. And the Attorney General Victor in Kentucky um, is named Daniel Cameron. He is a Republican who won the Attorney General race, so he wins this race yesterday. Daniel Cameron elected Kentucky's first African-American Attorney General. So the voters in Kentucky, the Republican voters, brought this guy, Daniel Cameron, victory as a black Republican for the, the first African-American attorney general in Kentucky. The, the, um, also, that's the attorney general. Also, the lieutenant governor, the second in command, is a black Republican. Of the five of six races that went on in Kentucky yesterday, the Republican won five of them, several of them very handily. The point being... Do not buy into what the left's trying to say, this is it, you know, Trump is toast and, and now he doesn't have the influence he used to. You have to be a good candidate. 
you have to be a good elected official. Among the many things that people said about Reagan in the years that Reagan ran and why he won over so many Democrats, he spoke in common sense terms, folksy, friendly, and everybody liked him. It matters, it helps a candidate to be likable. Bevan, for whatever reasons he has, and he might just say that he's unfairly characterized, but he's known as being not real friendly, not warm, fuzzy, kind of an abrasive guy. And, you know, he wasn't popular. And the last time he won was by a, you know, it was a hair splitting victory. It wasn't like he just trounced his opponent last time he ran. So it, just don't read too much into that Kentucky governor's race. Second point I want to make is that the Mississippi Republican ran, won, the Mississippi governor, uh, gubernatorial candidate won. He also won um, with a, a surprise victory somewhat. He was down a few weeks ago. His name is Tate Reeves, surprisingly close race, but he won in Mississippi. And so that was good. Uh, but the other race I want to mention, and just kind of in closing out this discussion of our, the races yesterday is, What's really in the ballot in 2020 and what I'm going to get to tomorrow, we're going to talk about the entire show tomorrow, is what does it mean if America turns blue? What does turning blue mean for a state, for even a city, and to America? And to get to what it means to turn blue, we're going to talk about California. Because California is the premier blue state. In fact, many of the elections they have out there, because they have the um, they have the system in place where if you have a bunch of people running, the top two vote getters go to the runoff, not the top Democrat and the top Republican. Republicans hardly even get to the point of getting to run for anything in California. So California is very blue, very Democrat, falling apart, disastrously so. And I want to talk about that tomorrow because the Democrats are doing a victory lap in this country today because in the state of Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C., we had the Democrats took control of the Virginia legislature and they already have the governor's office. So in Virginia, Right next to Washington, the Democrats are going to try to start pushing all of the agenda items they really like. Gun control. They're already a sanctuary. Various jurisdictions are a sanctuary city, sanctuary county. They're probably going to move toward being a sanctuary state. Uh, they've spent tons, tons of money in Virginia, tons of money in Virginia to bring about this victory. And this is now a victory for the entire state. So they're going to be pushing for, uh, become a sanctuary state. They're going to be pushing gun control. They're going to be pushing expansion of Medicaid. Every single government program to expand the power and role and scope of the government will be on the table in Virginia. And so it's a beginning of watching what happens when countries turn blue or states turn blue. But I want to hit tomorrow and talk about what that really means. Because despite the Democrats' victory lap in Virginia, the truth is, it's a horrible thing to live in a blue state. It's a horrible thing. California is falling apart because it's a blue state, because of blue state policies. And Californians who actually work for a living, get paid and pay taxes, are leaving California because they can see what blue state policies do. We have to get in 2020 into the place we recognize we're talking about a blue, a blue state America or a red state America. We're talking blue America, red America. We're talking about freedom and not freedom. We're talking about the radical leftists who have taken over the Democrat Party, taken over this country. We cannot stand for that. We must fight every race from school district 
as you're hearing from Andrew Pollock, the uh, author of the book about the shooting at the uh, high school in Florida in 2018. We happy fighting our school district seats. Every level of government recognize the left is on a mission to truly radically transform this country to a government controlled society. Your freedom will be gone, will be gone if the Democrats take control. And so we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Okay, and what I always try to do at the end of every show is tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. Income inequality fact fix. I just want, I could not wait to tell you about this to understand leftist politicians are shrieking about income inequality in America. The top fifth of income earners make 60 times that of the bottom fifth. And so, yeah, that's pretty outrageous sounding. America, so their conclusion, America's racist, unfair, social, socialism, letting the government redistribute all the wealth, that's the only answer. Phil Graham, economist, former U.S. Senator from Texas, has pointed out the fallacy of the shrieking leftists. The bottom fifth receive food stamps, welfare, other government benefits paid for largely by the income earners in the top fifth. The real, the real ratio is not 60 to 1, it's 3.8 to 1. Adding benefits received by the bottom fifth, subtracting taxes paid by the top fifth, the result is the ratio of the top fifth to the bottom fifth is not 60 to 1, it's 3.8 to 1. American policy should be about increasing income earning potential of all Americans through better education, not wealth redistribution schemes. The media protection racket, Epstein, Clinton, and Kavanaugh. The truth is mainstream media is just like Pravda. It's Democrat propaganda. This is blatant and irrefutable. Project Veritas released a hot mic video of Amy Robach, ABC News anchor from 2016. She had and it's important it's 2016 because Hillary was running for president. ABC had the entire Jeffrey Epstein story of sex abuse of teenage girls in 2016. Photos, names of men involved, including Clinton, meaning Bill. ABC News killed the story in 2016, claiming they couldn't verify. Yeah, huh. But three years later, ABC ran with you unverified stories that Brett Kavanaugh is a gang rapist. They actually ran that story. The conclusions are obvious. ABC News protected Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. ABC News sought to destroy Trump's Supreme Court nominee. This is the indelible mark of a Pravda News service, a dishonest disgrace. In the 2019 election results from yesterday, Mississippi elected a GOP governor. Kentucky elected a black GOP attorney general by 15 points. Five of six state officers go GOP. The governor's race is not final. It may be final. It may be that Bevin's out, but there are reasons unrelated to the GOP-ness of his race. Virginia House of Delegates has a Dem majority. Going blue is not a triumph for anyone in Virginia or anywhere else. Dem-controlled states, California, Illinois, New York, are fiscal and cultural messes. Dem-controlled cities, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, New York, Austin, Texas, are worse. More Americans must wake up. More freedom is always a better answer, not more power to the government. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for listening every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Please like this Facebook page, comment, share it. I'd so appreciate your sharing it. If you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe to YouTube. I love your comments. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. I do try to reply. I'm way behind, yes, but I do try to reply. And I if you're listening on Twitter, thank you so much. Please follow me on Twitter, at Debbie Can We Talk. Follow me, share this show. This show is a passionate exercise every day 
in Speaking Up for America, the most extraordinary, unique experiment in human liberty ever to bless this earth. I speak up for America every day because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you